0: Hello, 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 everyone. This is Aerie in the air. Welcome back to the podcast. So stoked you're here today. Really super fun and exciting thing to present to you after James Schmochtenberger, the CEO of Neurohacker Collective, and I collaborated on presenting at the STOA, which the STOA is the safest place on the internet and where uh, so much future think is happening. And we presented on open relationships and, more broadly, relationship dynamics that help evolve and heal and iterate our lives, ourselves, as well as have broader implications on humanity and civilization. That sounds kind of um, like a stretch, but I think that as you listen, I, I believe you will come to agree that the way that we relate to other people, the way we communicate with other people is where the rubber meets the road on how we are showing up in the world and where we're trying to guide our little slice of existence into the future. So I think this is a subject of deep importance and I lay out my framing first thing. Um, Before we get into it, I'll just tell you this is James Schmachtenberger, my buddy from Neurohacker. This is the third episode of the Neurohacker and Airy in the Air podcast collaboration. So check out Neurohacker. They make Qualia a suite of nootropic drugs that I take religiously for my podcast as well as my extreme action sports. Uh, very helpful stuff. I also want to thank Peter Limberg at the STOA for just being himself and having created such an incredible space and having me be a part of it. I'm so grateful. And also, to all the 35 people who are there live, and all of the people who hung out after, um, who wanted to ask questions and endeavor this deeper with us, and so many of those people were men, and I just like want to shout out to all the men who are wanting to grow and deepen their capacity for intimacy and their ability to love the world in a really big way. So... Shout out to all the men who showed up for this uh, beautiful conversation about love and relationships, and especially thanks, James Schmachtenberger, for bringing such wisdom and uh, just a beautiful, I just love the the dialectic space that he brings. It's so nice. So thanks, everybody. I hope you guys enjoy. This is about a 45-minute conversation between James and I, followed by uh, probably 45 minutes of Q&A, where we kind of have a panel of people asking us questions, which is so fun. I loved it. Thanks for listening. If you are interested in philosophical coaching, you can hit me up ariantheair.com slash coaching. Uh, There's a link for a free coaching call. Would love to untie some existential knots with you. In the meantime, here's a little music and we'll get right into this presentation.
1: people welcome to the stoa today is a special session because this is a co-hosted um session with airy uh airy in the air podcast it's an amazing podcast definitely recommend checking it out and so this is going to be uh, uh on that podcast and on the stoa's youtube channel uh, and airy is an extreme sports athlete podcaster philosopher and good friend of the stoa and he's joined today with James Uh, James is a serial entrepreneur and a change maker who focuses on social enterprises to harness the power of business for positive global change. Um, and Ari originally suggested the title of, of today's session, uh, Love, Orgy and Relationships, Polly as the Solution to the Metacrisis. James even like, oh, well, slow down, Ari. And uh, in his pneumatic excitement, uh, he might have uh, over overstretched his premises there. And so the, the new title of this uh, session is o- Open Relating Principles and Practices of Evolutionary Relationships. And uh, how today's going to work, I'm going to take in uh, Ari and James in a moment, and they're going to have a conversation podcast style for about 30 uh, to 45 minutes. And then we're going to pivot to Stoa style and have some uh, Q&A and It could be anywhere from uh, 75 minutes to 90 minutes uh, today, so yeah. That being said, I'm gonna tag in Ari and James and hand over the keys to you, fine gentlemen. Welcome to the STOA.
0: Thanks, Peter and James, for being here. Yeah, stoked!
2: Yeah, thank you. Uh, glad to be here.
0: So- okay, so yeah, this is uh, this is gonna be fun, and I think my my ambitious title there just comes after a couple of very um, exciting conversations with Alexander Bard. Uh, So yeah, you got to look out for that guy. Um, But let's start here. I just want to kind of lay out the frame for why I think this is worth presenting. And then I think we'll hear James's additional framing. And then I want to kind of just dive into this with James. I really appreciate his viewpoint and perspective on this subject. And so it is going to be somewhat like me harvesting his knowledge and perspective, as well as providing some of my own insight and experiences around the subject and really looking forward to hearing from you guys after our little chat. So We're here at the Stoa, which is where we live between worlds. Um, So many of us are familiar with the metacrisis. In England, they call it the polycrisis, which I thought is ironic for this subject. But um, there's so many of these long arcs that are all kind of like coming together that the way that we've done economics and governance and so many things are all kind of coming to an end. And we're, we're stuck living in outdated models of things while the next iteration of them is yet to be solidified. And we get to live in a time where we get to actively participate in ruminating, philosophizing and enacting the next form of our civilization. And with the metacrisis and the state of human relationships intimately, I think there are so many parallels between those two things. Um, for instance, we, we can talk about bad faith communication. We can talk about rivalrous dynamics, things like jealousy and possessiveness we can also look at the pre-modern religion and taboo and things that have really shaped our world and our worldview and our relationships, our marriages, our families, all of these things that may be outdated that that uh, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but like finding out exactly what the bathwater is, is really of critical import. I also think that As a generation and as a population, we are becoming more and more open to looking into ourselves. Therapy is just so much more normalized now than it was even a decade ago. Um, And I think that as a generation and as a populace right now, we're starting to take responsibility for our emotions, which is just a critical part of setting the stage for what The next level of human relationships is going to be. And that ties directly to kind of a concept or a tenant of polyamory or open relationships that your insecurities being triggered isn't actually the other person's fault or makes them wrong. Um, But I do want to preface this by saying that this inquiry into relational dynamics and more specifically, the concepts presented in polyamory or in open relationships are, I believe, really helpful for any kind of relationship, Uh, regardless if it's an intimate relationship or if it's a professional relationship or friendship. um, These concepts are very helpful and I think in alignment with the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible to use Eisenstein. Um, and also it's so important to note that none of these concepts actually dictate what you do with the logistics of your relationship or your sexuality or any of that. It has it actually has no real bearing on that um, from the top down. I want to present things that are applicable in relationships between parents and children. Like, um, so, um, I think that's, I think that's kind of my framing, James, do you want to present a little bit of the framing of why you think this is an important thing to share and maybe the moment too, why it's an important thing to share in the moment?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to. Um,
2: there's so many things to say about it. And I guess you know one of the things that strikes me is, so I, I've spent my whole life with a very deep kind of interest and sort of devotion to different aspects of personal development, um, and you know gone down various paths there, you know about as deeply as one could. Uh, but one of the things that you know really stood out to me for years as I was in that space was how little sexuality and relationship shows up there. Uh, relationships to some extent sexuality is still this like kind of off the table kind of taboo topic and that makes no sense to me because it's one of the most powerful human motivators Um, you know at a biological level the impulse to connect and procreate is as deep as anything can be and at a sort of psycho-emotional level the desire to connect to love to be loved to experience depth and presence with people is some of the most powerful kind of motivating forces in human dynamics. And so to just have these things be kind of shunned in society and pushed to the side causes us to separate from a really deep core part of ourselves in a way that has implications much more broad. So not only as a society, do we tend to have a huge amount of sexual, you know, shame and guilt. Um, but when you disconnect from something that's so core to what the human experience is, it then forces a disconnect from so many other parts of what the human experience is. And until there's the ability to really own all of who we are, including the scary, the taboo, then there's not really room to actually live a full experience of life. And so you know, diving into these domains, whether it's practically in terms of actually having overmulating dynamics, or if it's just sort of psychologically and philosophically, being able to explore the full depth of who we are as humans, as living creatures is just, I think, you know, one of the
3: the deepest necessities in being able to understand ourselves more more
2: deeply, more powerfully, and then understand ourselves, understand each other more. And that's where you know, a lot of the principles, ideas that we might talk about that in this conversation have an orientation towards open relating have much broader implications. And ultimately those same principles, these some value systems that underlie actually apply to all forms of relationship, whether romantic or not and allow us to have drastically better quality of relationships, better connection, better empathy, better understanding, better self-confidence. And through the process of being able to improve human dynamics, not only do our individual lives get better, but it opens up the door to much, much broader implications.
0: And I think that you just framed exactly why I titled it as open relationships as a solution, not the solution, as a solution to the metacrisis. Because as I kind of pointed out, and you've uh, echoed that there's so many of these concepts have in relationship a certain dynamic, and it mirrors out into the fractal of existence altogether that rivalrous dynamics in relationship and rivalrous dynamics in the economy provide a vastly different experience and dynamic than something that was set up to be anti-rivalrous. So I would like to just kind of point out a couple of these concepts uh, or, you know, kind of point them out and have you reflect on how you see them showing up in intimate relationships and how you see them more broadly.
3: Okay. So
0: the, the first one, um, is rivalrous dynamics. And, um, just to kick off the riff, I think that in my own experience, I've, and, and also just as context here, I think that the, one of the reasons that I'm so engaged and interested in this topic is because I find myself healing and growing so much right now through my relationships and like through facing the insecurities that come up in my relationships. And so I just want to put everyone at ease that the things that I, I'm basically dealing with constantly, like my own insecurities bubbling up in relationship intimately. Um, and so.
2: Although in all fairness, pretty much everyone regardless of relational dynamic No, diving into it gives an opportunity to move through that more so.
0: But yeah. yeah. So I want to start with rivalrous dynamics. So many of us are familiar with the tragedy that rivalrous dynamics has created in our society through economics and geopolitics. But how do you see rivalry showing up in relationship? And what is the what is a relationship that is anti-rivalrous look like or feel like? And Furthermore, what kind of things do we see uh, blossoming out of uh, relationships that are anti-rivalrous?
3: Yeah,
2: so, you know, I mean, rivalrous dynamics largely stem from scarcity, If you look back at different human cultures, the ones that had a lot of rivalry, had a lot of conflict, a lot of violence were ones that were in areas that had very little in the way of natural resources. And so when there wasn't enough food and water and shelter and things to go around, then there was an orientation towards conflict to be able to get what you needed. And when you look at cultures in areas that had abundance, um, where you know, food wasn't an issue and there was plenty of what was needed, then you didn't see nearly the same level of
3: rivalry. Um, and you know, so rivalry has come into the domain of relationship but in a, in my
2: view, in sort of a false way, right? Because there's nothing, well, not nothing. There aren't that many things that are inherently scarce in the domain of love and relationship. Um, Now, as a society, we've come to believe that there are, right? Largely through the influence of different religious structures, though many other things, right? There's this idea that you can only love one person or at least in a particular fashion. And so in that, there is an inherent competition that starts to come up because if you love one person, it means you don't have room or space for somebody else. And if that happens to be the natural orientation of that dynamic, there's no room for it. It's going to either shut it down or it's going to create conflict amongst the people. Um, But there's nothing inherently scarce about the ability to love. And this is actually something we all know just in different frameworks, right? Like if you have a child and then you end up having another one, there's no love lost for the first child. Mm -hmm. There's an expanded capacity to love even more Mm -hmm. and to be able to have a profound depth of love for your partner, for both of the kids, for your pet, for, you know, whatever it is, love is something that's sort of inherently, open and expansive. And then we just have this false concept that where love happens to pair with romanticism, it has to have this extremely narrow band. But that's actually not in line with human nature. Right? If you look back at most cultures throughout time, though there's some you know, disagreement on this, largely it's kind of understood. We Most of human history has been has had an orientation towards pair bonding, but non-monogamously so. Um, And the desire to connect in a whole myriad of different ways is a pretty intrinsic human trait. In our current society, we largely see it come out sideways, right? The rate of divorce is 50 plus percent um, and a huge portion of that is the result of cheating. And even of the people who stay married, the statistics around how many of them are cheating is kind of terrible so like these tendencies are obviously kind of innate to who we are the question is how do we navigate them do we try to suppress what is our natural orientation in a way that it's going to eventually bubble up as a means of stress relief or getting away from the conflict of the relationship or whatever it happens to be or do we actually acknowledge and own that and find ethical
3: open ways of being able to navigate and communicate about what's real um, that's beautiful let me just play uh, not even devil's advocate but
0: the on the topic of scarcity knowing that all of our actions are mutually exclusive of everything else, Put, place that with time. There is like time as a relational resource.
2: Yeah. So, so time is the inherent challenge here, right? Because time does have a finite capacity to it. Um, you know, I, I joke with friends sometimes that like the, the biggest challenge of open relating is not the jealousy, it's not the processing, it's not any of those things. It's the complexity of my calendar. Um, and so that is a real thing. And with that, there is a need to be really conscientious and prioritize where you want to put your time, energy, and love mostly. Um, and you know that does mean you're not just following every impulse that arises. Right? As sort of biological creatures, we have all kinds of impulses that arise. Um, and to just kind of blindly follow that would, not only not work scheduling wise, but it's almost guaranteed to be a disaster. Um, so there, there is still, even in various types of open relating dynamics, a need to be really thoughtful of where are you applying your time and attention? Where are you applying your presence, your love, your intention, your devotion? Um, and if that becomes too broad, then it does tend towards a lack of depth. Um, And for some people, that's what they want. And as long as it's done in a really open, conscientious, well-communicated fashion, that can be okay. For me, that's not the orientation. I've always been a deeply relational kind of person. Um, And so, you know, with that, I've tended to have a relatively small number of people that I connect with for years on end. Um, and really prioritize that and balance it, but you know I would much rather spend my non-working time in deep loving connection than watching TV or doing any of the other things that people often do to fill their time. Um, so it it works. It just requires some effort and some thoughtfulness, and hmm. in my case, a really exceptional personal assistant who helps schedule everything.
0: <laughs> yeah and you bring up a couple things there and one of them that stands out and i think of this as like a deep tenant of what we're talking about is the lack of obligation once we stop feeling obligated to relate or behave in a certain way we open up pandora's box of how we're actually going to relate and what right. i heard you say was basically that you know you you can't relate to Everyone always, you can't just chase any of all of your impulses. And it seems like this is one of the healthiest transitions that we have uh, to paint with a broad brush. It's essentially that as children, we get told that we have to do things and we fall into a pattern of people pleasing. And then in our adult relationships, that pattern doesn't serve us. And it seems like we're all having some kind of, uh, or there's some kind of mass awakening to the patterns of codependency and, um, rewriting those patterns out of codependency and into interdependence, um, and shedding obligation. Um, and so I'd like you to double click on, on this specific thing, this this sense of obligation and or people pleasing as a pattern and how it shows up in relationships and what it's like when we get to really choose what we do with our time and our energy and our connection.
3: So
2: this kind of relates to how I ended up coming to open relating because it wasn't something that was always part of my life. Right. Most of my life, I was in monogamous relationships, and, and I'm a very devotional person, so that was actually very easy for me. Um, but it was—I don't know—I want to say like 13, 14 years ago, I went down this kind of deep rabbit hole, deciding to question everything I had ever learned, or at least everything I was conscious that I had ever learned. Right. And so, everything that had some kind of societal framework that said this thing is good or this thing is bad i tried to dissect it and see, like, is that inherently true or is that something that we've been taught that doesn't have a real basis? Um, And so first I kind of had to define, well, how do I go about this? Right. And so the way that I looked at it, it was more complex than this, but to simplify it was something is wrong if it causes more harm or suffering than is necessary. Um, And if it isn't that, it doesn't mean that it's inherently right. It just means that at that point, it's more a matter of personal preference versus something that has any kind of inherent value system attached to it. And so I started going through all kinds of different things and kind of breaking them down systematically. Um, And, you know,
3: eventually I ended up in this question of is monogamy inherently right or wrong? Um, And, And it was a tricky one because, you know, when I first looked at it, I was like, oh, it's inherently wrong because if you're not
2: monogamous, it triggers jealousy and creates hard feelings, which is suffering. Right. So I had to take it, you know, multiple levels deeper because is the suffering that we experience around that actually inherent or is that part of a belief system that we've fallen into that doesn't actually have a real basis. Um, And so as I kind of broke it all down progressively more and more, what I came to realize was there's nothing about monogamy that is inherently right or inherently wrong. It is essentially a matter of personal preference. Uh, Now there are certain instances where one form of relationship or another may make more sense for somebody's life. If, if simplicity is a core value of yours, polyamory is not the ideal path. Uh, It's inherently more complicated. Um, If, freedom of expression is a
3: deep value, then it's likely a better path in that direction. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of values to going through and kind of breaking down
2: all the things that we've learned. And you know, so you, you brought it up in terms of obligation. Right? So as a society, we have this obligation to relate in certain ways. We have all these frameworks that say, oh, with this style of relationship, I have to show up in this particular way. Right. When I'm in a business relationship, I've got to be professional and, um, you know, I can shake hands, but I can't hug. Um, When I am, you know, in an intimate relationship, that's the only place that I'm allowed to have this this feeling of deep love and devotion and anywhere else it's wrong. Um, That takes quite a while to deconstruct. It's not something, at least in my experience, I've never seen anyone just do that logically quickly and be able to have much effectiveness with it because the, the belief systems here are deeply ingrained, right? If you grew up in any kind of religion, there's usually quite a lot of influence there, but there's influence from school, there's influence from media, from all kinds of things. So you, know, you kind of go through this deep, personal, philosophical kind of deconstruction and look at where are the places that the ways that I'm showing up in my life, the ways that I'm showing up in a relationship are obligatory, or another way of saying it is, where is it a default um, sort of response? And is that default response actually what you really want? Is it serving a higher good? Is it serving a higher nature? And if it's not, how do you begin to let that go more and more and replace those default
3: responses with clear conscientious choices. I love that. And I think that, you know,
0: one of my beliefs about this conversation is that this is one of the conversations where the meta crisis is like, this is where the rubber meets the road. Like literally the way you communicate with the people around you, especially the the way you communicate to the people that you claim to love is like, such an incredible barometer for how you're showing up in the world right? right what you mean when you say you love someone what that comes with what obligations expectations possessiveness all these different things that historically the you know marriage and ownership have been nearly synonymous so this is a this is a really grounded. Like this is kind of where the meta crisis comes into our homes. It's where it comes into our hearts. It's where it like arises in our emotions. Um, and for that reason, I think that it's so important to talk about these things and encourage people to really take a deep look at what they feel. Um, you know, so much feeling comes up in emotion or in, in relationship It's like relationship is just the richest wellspring of emotion. It's just like constant, whether it's joyous or or painful. And uh, to your point that you've never seen anyone logic their way out of these feelings. Yeah, of course not. And it's a a, a long evolution that uh, is, as you said, if simplicity is what you're looking for, then polyamory probably isn't for you. But I want to go back on that note to the to the point that it doesn't necessarily mean anything about your relational structure to be eyes wide open and welcoming of the philosophical implications of, or the, the, the telltales of your conditioning by what comes up for you in relationship. And It gets more fun, I think. It gets more rewarding. It gets deeper when you start relating to people in a really self-onerous way that insists that the way you feel is not caused by another person and that there's so much uh, rich experience as well as learning and self-knowledge that comes from relationships. I want to... Uh, There was another guy who shared your same last name, uh, who's been here at the STOA a couple of times, and he presented on this great topic. He called it like a metric to determine the health of a society or a uh, governance structure or even relationships. And it was basically the axis that he drew was between compersion, which was a term created by the polyamory community in the 90s because there wasn't a word for it, which is telling –
2: um, Which compersion. we should define compersion because a lot of people don't. Yeah, yeah.
0: Don't so, so compersion is where when someone feels pleasure, it brings you joy. Or when someone feels positive emotion, you have positive emotion. And your brother said that this was positively coupled relationships. Mm-hmm. On the other side, there's negatively coupled rela- or Negatively coupled relationships, where, like jealousy, is where when someone experiences something positive, you experience something negative. Um, this is right.
3: of.
2: Christian is essentially the opposite of jealousy, right? It's finding joy, love, happiness in the joy, love, and happiness of those that you
3: love, regardless right. of what it is that brings that to them, as long as it's something that's healthy.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the relational examples of your partner going on a date with someone that they like who treats them well, bringing you joy or bringing you jealousy. And economically, we can think of how you would feel if your closest professional competition gained some kind of promotion or accolade or something like that. The the parallels here are just too many to to list um so i would just love to hear from you on this topic which is like kind of
3: it's like the nomer for this conversation and it's jealousy uh, um hmm. Because I think that everyone really wants to feel positive emotions for
0: their, for the people that they love and care about feeling positive emotions. Like someone having a positive experience, I want to feel positive, but it doesn't always manifest in me as positive. Right. So.
2: No, it's true. I mean, you know, and, and jealousy is one of the hardest things that people tend to struggle with as they move into the domain of open relating, um, because there are, you know, there's deep belief systems that are attached there, okay? Because jealousy is not just a emotion. It's actually sort of like the confluence of a whole shit ton of emotions squishing together into a very painful experience. Um, and all of those emotions are based on a series of different beliefs with the basis of it essentially being that this person who I love, the thing that is bringing them joy, the thing that's lighting them up is going to take away from me, okay? If they're falling in love with somebody else, it means they're not going to be available to me. Or even if somebody else is flirting with them, it means they're going to find that other person more exciting and now look at me as less exciting. I may lose them entirely, or I may just lose some aspect of that spark. Um, And though that can at times be true, there's nothing inherently true about it. Um, And so it requires a reframing of the way that we look at things. And being able to move in the direction of being excited about and celebrating that, which brings joy to those that you love and recognizing all of the positives that can come from that. All the ways that as your partner is more lit up, is more alive, is more turned on, more passionate about life, of course, that's going to have positive implications on you, unless you freak out about it and judge them for it, shame them for it, You know, want them not to have that in which case it's going to cause them to close off in general but specifically close off to you right because the these things that are bringing them joy are something that are creating more distance between the two of you and then that starts to develop a pattern that then plays out over an extended period of time and creates progressively more and more distance um
0: i i want to interject here and just because i I think what you're saying is is spot on that just because you're jealous doesn't mean that the thing that you're afraid of losing that you're inherently going to lose that it doesn't mean it but i think that an even bigger test of your character and the quality of your love for this relationship is in the face that that might actually be true right the the thought that her flirting with another man might actually be her meeting the man that's best for her or like that, that something right. more positive for her is going to come of this. Um Yeah. Bingo. And, and, and so there's like this, this in the
2: whole, but it's a really important one. Right? Like, so for yeah. me, I say, I love you. That doesn't come with conditions for one. It means I love you forever, regardless of what structure our relationship may take over time. I'm always going to have the depth of love, the depth of devotion 20, 30 years from now, even if I haven't seen you for a while, right? But it also means that in my love, I want for you. I want what is going to bring you the most joy, the most beauty, the most extraordinary experience of life that is possible. And I want to show up for you in a way that supports and facilitates that. And to the extent that I can do that, then I want to be with you to the extent that someone else is actually better positioned for that, I want for you more than I want for my own sense of security. Yeah, because As you evolve this, your sense of security stops being tied to the structure of the relationship or to a given individual. It becomes
3: tied to your own sense of self. Right.
0: And- yeah. And, and it brings up for me, these stoic tenants of, of negative visualization that, that, you know, a deep sense of self-love and a deep sense of confidence that can come from knowing that this person leaving the relationship, I'm still going to be okay. And I would hope that them leaving the relationship would be positive for them, that there was, that there's more joy, more positivity ahead for them. Right.
3: Yeah. yeah,
2: these are I mean I've personally had that experience before. Like a few years ago, I was at a event and met a woman and just we immediately fell like crazy in love with each other. Um and it kicked off what was you know really kind of extraordinary romance. Uh, but you know, she didn't have a primary relationship and I did. And so the amount of Time I had available, not the amount of love or presence, but the amount of time I had available, didn't actually match what she wanted. Um, and somebody else, you know, a few months into the process, came into her life that was able to meet her in similar ways to where I was, but also was single and available for that. And given, you know, sort of the newness of their connection, it kind of inherently moved in the direction of an autonomous connection. And even though that was painful, I was more supportive of and excited about that than I was in the pain. Now, granted,
3: I still went and felt feelings and processed that, and you know, there was a sense of loss associated, but ultimately I
2: so enjoyed seeing her light up in a way that she was able to actually get more of
3: her needs met than something that I was able to engage in.
0: Yeah. And I think you just touched on something that's so beautiful. It's like for this to be real, you have to be able to be in touch with your grief, in touch with your loss, in touch with your negative emotions, your jealousy, your pain, your your insecurities, and there's so much to learn, and there's like so much rich human experience in all of that.
2: I mean, one of the biggest factors or premises in open relating is honesty and transparency right? If you can't be honest and transparent first and foremost with yourself, right? Can you be real about what you're feeling? Cause it's not always going to be rainbows and sunshine. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's going to fucking hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, and you actually have to be able to accept the entirety of that and be able and willing to process all of that. Um, and then once you have the ability to be sort of honest, real, and transparent with yourself, then there's this necessity to be able to be honest, real, and transparent with those that you're in relationship with. Mm -hmm. And without it, I've never seen open-relating work. And I see a lot of people go down this path of sort of don't ask, don't tell. They're like, we know that we're each doing things, but we're not going to talk about it. Um, And very rarely does that sustain for any meaningful period of time without becoming a serious pain point. the places where I've seen seen things really succeed is the ability and the willingness to be fully transparent about not just what's happening, but what you're feeling, what's, what's alive in you, what's motivating you. Um, And to be able to do that about other people while staying totally connected to what moves me about you, my primary partner. Right. Um, And that also supports the experience of conversion as opposed to jealousy, but Yeah, I mean, transparency and the willingness to share openly and sort of entirely is kind of a critical step in any long-term functioning open relationship that I've seen. Now, that same principle applies everywhere. We don't do it everywhere (laughs) as a population, right? But the more that we're able to be transparent, the more that we're willing to be vulnerable, to be honest, with the people in our lives. And obviously, there are certain dynamics where there are reasons to hold back aspects of that. Right? In certain business conditions, you may have you know proprietary information that you can't share. So it's not just like blindly, unthoughtfully share everything, um, but the, built, the willingness to share everything that is possible to be shared and is
3: pertinent to a situation is something that cross applies and improves all type of relationship, regardless of the structure. Yeah.
0: Um, and that you just tied together the evolutionary, the the relationships that lead to your evolution, to the evolution of your relationships and the larger thing that we've been pointing at, which is the bigger implications of you as an actor in the ecology of humanity, um, how you show up when, the rubber meets the road in this way relationally and how that helps you grow the the point that we were just hovering around around negative emotions that um in that um Schmachtenberger presentation i was referring to he references this book it's called the way to love by anthony demello highly recommended it is a uh, very cutting very insightful and uh there was this quote that came to mind and it says Happy events make life delightful, but they do not lead to self-discovery and growth and freedom. That privilege is reserved to the things and persons and situation that cause us pain. And I think that there's some kind of like mass acceptance that's happening or is ripe to happen where we are more and more willing to use our negative experience, our pain as a... Transformational cue for us to grow, evolve, and deepen our self knowledge, our intimacy with others, and our agency altogether.
3: Right.
2: Well, I mean, I think when you can actually use pain as a guide for where to lean in, it becomes really powerful, right? For most of us, it's like we experience some uncomfortable emotion, regardless of the aspect of life, and we try to move away from it right? We ignore it. We have a cocktail, we smoke some weed, we watch some TV, whatever it is. But that doesn't do anything to heal it. It, It's a way of kind of self-soothing or comforting. But when you actually take those same experiences and and you say, what is this teaching me? What is it in this jealousy? What is it in this fear and this insecurity that is actually trying to unearth something that I'm Mm -hmm. not yet aware of? and you become willing to actually lean into that, you start to get, well, for one, just a lot more
3: real, right? We stop trying to pretend that everything is great all the time. And you start to actually be human, mm-hmm. but good faith, process,
0: bad faith,
2: right? But in that process, it also allows you to uncover so much, like what are the belief systems that are driving us, right? What are the, Things that are being triggered in me that are causing that emotion because it's not inherent, right? If you and I experience the exact same set of circumstances, our emotional response will almost certainly be different. And so, the fact, but but we don't get that, right? We tend to believe our emotional experience. We're like, oh, this thing happened, therefore that person was mean,
3: right?
2: But somebody else that has that exact same interaction is like, oh, that was funny, that was touching, that was whatever, right? So when we have these painful or negative emotions come up, it's an opportunity to go underneath it and say, okay, what, what belief systems are actually arising and driving this emotion? And then is that belief something that I actually want to be a driver for me? Is it in line with my conscious value system? Or is it something that I've just been running in sort of the background on default for years? And if it is that, how do I work on it?
0: Yeah, I love this. And I think that if someone can listen very closely to what James is saying and rewrite a title and description that shows that essentially the thing that I wanted to point to today is that by becoming hyper-conscious of the belief systems that we hold in relationships, we will uncover where the metacrisis lives in us and like how it shows up. Like it's, it's just like, you know, I did two hours with Zach Stein yesterday and it's like kind of, he's got the same thing to say. It's like, there's there's just like beliefs that we have, like the meta crisis lives in our relationships and in our homes in ways that we haven't been aware of um, through merely social justice. And so um, that's a really beautiful little bow on that. I want to get into the Q&A here, but first I would just love to hear from Peter Lindbergh what how this is all landed and um because i have a little bit of knowledge of how your intimate relationships the the structure there so i would just love to hear from you how this lands for you what this brings up any insights you have before we get into the q a Hmm. yeah
1: someone who's uh living the monogamous gangster lifestyle for like, I don't know how, how long now been married for four years and um, dating 10 years before that. Um, there's a, a, a curiosity, not so much at this point in my life to engage in the poly or open relationship lifestyle, but just um, the people who do, how do they make it work? Uh, mm-hmm. Cause um, my senses is, is the same of a uh, sense of what James shared about coming down to personal preference uh and a question i asked daniel uh, during one of his solo sessions and i forgot how i answered it uh, but it was uh the question i asked is what unique benefits does opening uh, open relationships uh afford better than monogamy and then in contrast what unique benefits does monogamy afford better than open relating and could those benefits be gotten by you know the the, the other side uh, and how um so i'm kind of sitting with that uh the, the benefits, uh, from each lifestyle and, and how do you get it? If you, if you, your preference uh, lies elsewhere.
0: Okay. Um, I, I want to answer the benefits for monogamy part. And then i maybe James, you can answer the benefits for poly part. sure So I would say that, you know, I was married for almost a decade as well. And I am, as James said, he, he says he's a devout person. I find myself quite devout as well. Um, and just to re- reiterate, like the, the concepts here don't actually determine what the structure of your relationships and, uh, ends up being, but the benefit of monogamy is clarity. There's just clarity there. And there's also purpose, which is not something that's, Unique to monogamy, because I think that you can get purpose when you have deep, intimate relationships of any structure, right? And the one that just like, just the one that is just so bright, shining, it's just so obvious, it like is the thing, is family, it's reproduction, it's children, it is like having a home and having children like monogamy and children are in my head, just intertwined. Um, that's not to say that it can't be done other ways, but I think that if you're trying to have children, it seems like monogamy and, uh, a bit more tunnel vision on what's right in
3: front of you seems like a a pretty big advantage. Yeah. Well said. Um,
2: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that the ability to have family or children is something that is inherent to monogamy and not present in other relational styles. Cause I, though I don't have kids, I have you know, many friends that do that have different types of open relating styles. Um, I
3: do think that in many ways it's easier though. Um, and, you know, I think just kind of on top of what you said, it's like, The depth that can come from being able to devote
2: so much of your time, energy, attention and self to a single relationship is a really extraordinary experience and it's not something that should be like looked at as less than I actually think that monogamy is right for far more people than open relating is.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, and that ability to devote that much energy into connecting into healing, into evolving individually and as a pair is beautiful.
2: Um, you know, if we look at the opposite side of that, okay, what are you know what are some of the benefits that are inherent to open relating that maybe are less present in monogamy? Um, you know, we've all had the experience when we're falling in love. It's like our neurochemistry is going crazy, and it opens us up in these really unique kinds of ways that don't tend to open through a lot of other experiences. Not to say it can't, but it's it's really powerful. Um, and when you pair that with the ability to explore different facets of yourself, right? Because every every relational dynamic is going to pull out certain parts of who you are more so than a different relationship does. Um, And so being able to have these deep explorations where you're diving into progressively more parts of who you are that are each being kind of pulled on or elicited by different relational dynamics and then supported by the feeling of love, which is creating vulnerability, creating openness, creating a desire to be seen,
3: to see the other. in many ways, it allows us to become aware of more of who we are in a faster capacity than doing it through a single channel can. Um, so I think I think that's probably the core one that is present for me. Mm. Um, there are definitely things
2: around like aspects of expression. Um, and having more outlets for different types of expression that may not all be available within one particular relational dynamic,
3: Uh,
2: right? Like with my primary partner and I, we have a lot of types of expression that overlap, which is really beautiful, but we also have some that are quite different. And there are things that I'm interested in that she just couldn't care less about and vice versa. And so it's like, I can, to some extent, explore those on my own, or maybe try to convince her to explore with me in ways that aren't entirely authentic, or I can have the opportunity to explore those aspects of expression fully with other people who happen to have that
3: mirror. Um, But I think the the piece about sort of self-discovery and being able to elicit all the different parts of
2: ourselves in the most vulnerable, most open ways is the piece that I tend to focus most
3: on there.
0: Yeah. I also just want to add here that it's a thing that I've heard Zach Stein riffing on lately. And it's essentially that there is enormous power in your capacity to cooperate with other people. Right. Like your power as a human is directly related to your power to healthily relate and cooperate, collaborate, co-create with other people. And in the context of monogamy that's absolutely true and in the context of open relationships it's absolutely true as well so that just brings me back to this 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 bullseye here that that the quality of your relationships is your power and so the tenets of polyamory or open relationships the position of becoming hyper-conscious conscious of the conditioning that you have around relationships your language around relationships and the like is such a healing evolving therapeutic transformational experience it's uh, such a such a powerful pathway regardless of your relational strategy logistics structure. Right. So that's amazing.
3: One of the core premises here
2: is just any form of relationship with yourself, with others, romantically, other than that, will all be better. The more that the way that you're showing up to it is conscientious. The more that you're showing up to your relationship with self or other from a unconscious kind of default way, it's just never going to have the optionality it's never going to have the same depth of fulfillment so regardless of relational structure regardless of relational preference it's the willingness to do the work to let go of the default patterning
3: and to become progressively more aware and progressively more conscious in the choices of how we're showing up crushed it q and a let's do it peter um
1: so if anyone has uh, any questions, uh, pop it in the chat. Um,
3: Mint, uh, you had a question. Yeah, I you know I was just wondering if caffeine and nootropics make us more patterned.
1: Like I've sort of found myself when I'm on uh, stimulants, you know,
3: I'm I'm more uh, projecting onto people. Right. Um, So it's it's a good question. I would say part of that's dose dependent. Mm -hmm. um,
2: And part of it is what else you're doing in relationship to taking the things. Um, So, you know, yes, caffeine and certain kinds of nootropics are going to increase your focus, your drive, potentially your intensity,
3: Mm -hmm. uh,
2: which and look or feel like patterning, Um, but that's not inherent. Like many of the nootropics actually increase things like neuroplasticity and give you more flexibility and more optionality. A lot of it is what are you doing in your life at the same time that you're taking those? If the thing that you're doing is a pattern, you're gonna get better at doing the pattern. If the thing that you're doing is breaking patterns, and bring different ways of being different parts of who you are, you're gonna get progressively better at that. So if all you do is take a bunch of caffeine and nootropics and do email all day, you're gonna get really good at the pattern of handling email. But if you take them and you use that drive, that energy, that you know, capacity to develop new skill sets, mm-hmm. you're gonna be able to do that progressively better and it'll actually be pattern breaking.
0: And to my, my own experience around relationships and caffeine is that caffeine doesn't help me show up in a really non-reactive way. Um, Caffeine for me, the more intense my relational dynamics, the less I can have caffeine, just hard stop. Like I switch to decaf when things are hard for me. Uh, Otherwise it just like shows up as anxiety in my body. The nootropics on the other hand, help seem experientially. They increase my bandwidth to process experience and emotion. um, Whether that's in the physical realm, doing action sports or in conversation relationally. Um, But I take non-caffeinated nootropics and I think that they help me have bandwidth in my relationships um, but yeah, I don't recommend caffeine if you're in intense relational dynamics and you find yourself reactive.
2: Well, I mean, most people overdo caffeine like crazy, right? They take. Right. Like caffeine is an exceptional molecule, but in relatively small dosage. Um, and when you start to get past that, it does have issues. And like <laughs> much so than we would like to admit, we are creatures of chemistry. Right? Yes, there's free will. Yes, there's conscious choices, all these things, but extent, right. it is mediated through biochemistry. Um, and so being attentive to what you're putting into your system, whether it's for general life, whether it's relationship, is totally important. I remember in the very early days of um, Neurohacker, when we were doing R&D and testing out all kinds of different stuff, we had put together this formula that was freaking incredible for cognitive function. And but it like it was causing my processing speed to be so fast that I found myself getting frustrated with everybody around me because they weren't keeping up <laughs> and at some point, and, I, and like I, I was already kind of on the fence with it because like I was so in love with how much I was getting done, but I also didn't quite love the experience. And at one point, my partner walked in and she's like, "So we need to talk because you've kind of become an asshole." And i was <laughs> like, "Got it. <laughs> Not the right formula." I, and we tweaked it. Um, so, yes, I mean, the what we're putting in, food, nootropics, all that is critical. Um, and using your experience of life as the guide as to whether or not the thing that you're putting in is appropriate is a good way of going about it. There's all kinds of research that you can do and it's worth doing. But ultimately, it's are the things that you're putting into yourself enhancing the experience of life enhancing the quality of your relationships or are they detracting if they're detracting stop if they're enhancing keep going
0: right okay let's hear from kevin kevin's got a hot question
1: uh, thanks min cool. uh again uh, kevin in a moment but yeah just for context uh james is uh, the co-founder of neurohacker collective uh with his brother daniel and Jordan jordan hall i think they're all co-founders um
3: Aaron, you had, uh, or no, uh, yeah, Aaron, you had a question, then we'll go to to Kevin. Hey, guys. Um, My favorite type of question, uh, what is the dark side of polyamory?
1: So there's like benefits and there's ways it could work out and be like a really good thing, but I sense a lot of people uh, use polyamory or view polyamory in this way to sort of cover up something they don't want to confront, as in they're afraid of intimacy or... It's they want to have everything like they don't want to have to compromise on their life. So I want to like have all the sex I want and have the wifey at home, et cetera. So what's kind of like the uh, the
2: dark side of Holi and Oh, there's bunches of them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for for some people, it's just this the desire to follow any and all impulses. Um, and that doesn't go well. right? Like the more that you increase optionality, the more that you also have to increase impulse control um so you know the desire to have the the benefit of the stable loving relationship while just getting to sleep around broadly and not
3: think about what the implications of that are totally one of the dark sides um i mean one of the biggest ones i see is just sort of emotional irresponsibility it's like there's this desire to
2: be able to pursue what feels alive in your heart, but without simultaneously being in conscious awareness. And like most people that I see coming into open relating hurt each other so much and so unnecessarily the first few years. Um, and they either leave that structure and go back to monogamy or go through a big evolutionary process. Uh, but you know, to the extent that you're going to play in realms that are challenging. that are causing you to butt up against deep societal constructs, deep belief systems, you have to be willing to do that at a pace that's manageable. Um, And with enough both quality and quantity of communication to actually do it in a way that's responsible for
3: everybody involved. Um, And I guess, I mean, there's a bunch, but one of the other key ones that I'll flag is um, opening a relationship
2: it should not be done as a way of solving a problem in your core relationship. Um,
0: you I, want to reserve that for having children.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things I see all the time, it's like somebody has been together for a few years and they love each other and there's a bunch of things that work, but there's you know, a handful of areas where their relationship just fundamentally is not working. And rather than dealing with it, they're like, Oh, there's the shiny object that, happens to make me feel all warm and fuzzy about these same areas that I'm feeling repressed and upset in my relationship. I want to go explore the warm and fuzzy. Um, now that's a great way to trigger jealousy. Um, <laughs> right. Cause it it's, it's a compensatory mechanism as opposed to really showing up for what's real opening a relationship should be first and foremost, coming from a place of having a really beautiful, strong relationship if, if you're doing sort of pair bonded non-monogamy right then the primary relationship has to be in a really good order and then you can add to it in ways that are enhancing at, at least neutral or preferably enhancing but when you're just trying to fill holes
3: that aren't otherwise being addressed through other mechanisms it tends to go very badly There's a lot dark sides. I mean, it's,
2: I've watched way too many people hurt each other in such a myriad of ways.
3: Um, you know, open relating requires a lot of emotional maturity. Um, and, and that's why I say, like, for most people,
2: it's not the right path. Um, I mean, partly there's, you know, preference, there's time availability, but it's like, if you're going to go down this path, you have to be willing to do a lot of deep work both individually and in partnership. And
3: for a lot of people, they're either not able to or not willing to, um, in which case it's not a good path. Quick follow-up. Um,
1: do you think that most people will try out open relationships are going to like crash and burn the first time they try it, or the first two times they try it, and that should be expected? They like, you have to have a few failed projects before one succeeds.
3: I don't
2: think it's inherent, but I think it is common. Um, I think that, so I mean, one thing is because open, I mean, open relationships becoming progressively more normal, but it's still a fringe way of being. And anytime you're living in anything that is a fringe, if you don't have a good support structure around you, it's just inherently going to be more difficult. So if all of your friends are strictly monogamous, and you go and you talk to them about the problem that you're having in your relationship, their answer is going to be, oh, it's because you're open. Right? And it's like not necessarily the most helpful answer. It's understandable why they come to it, but it doesn't actually support the evolution of the conversation. So as people are exploring it, I think that finding community is really helpful. Um, And most cities at this point have some sense of community around open relating where you can go to events, you can meet people, but having other people that are in a similar exploration that you can connect with and have conversations with is really helpful. And to the extent possible, being able to connect with people who actually have been down this road for a while, also really helpful. Like I was wildly fortunate that the first serious relationship I got into when I opened, when I came into open relating was with a woman who had been one of the top teachers on polyamory for 15 years, right? So I was going through a learning curve. She wasn't. Um, And it drastically accelerated my learning curve and allowed me to not have a lot of the pain points that other people did. Uh, Doesn't mean there weren't still some, but where there's the ability to, whether it's as friends or whether it's as partners, have people that have been down this path and can help kind of
3: guide it a little bit super useful and reduces the probability that the first period of time is going to be hard thanks awesome thanks aaron um kevin did you have a, a share or question
4: yeah i have a question um actually a few people in the chat have been kind of touching and we kind of you kind of been getting towards this with the subject of uh, raising children, but there's not really, you haven't really touched on like the other side of this. So like in the beginning of this talk, we are discussing, you were discussing the importance of like, like a relational awareness and, you know, there's the implication of like awareness of like sexuality and feelings um, and how it's suppressed by our society and that kind of thing but it feels like the biggest challenge to me is like when and how this is introduced, because like, you know, I mean, I went through like sex ed classes in public school, but it feels like it's just such a huge can of worms to open. Like it's easy to keep that in the shadow, like during, you know, teenage development or whatever. Um, like, and it's such a hot button issue these days. Like, let me give you an example. Um <clears throat> So there's a there's a kind of book that's kind of popular among teachers or some teachers in the the school right now, about like teaching emotional awareness, and it had like two axes: one for like you know positive emotion, one for negative emotion, one for like energetic versus like depressed. And there's like you know four quadrants. But I but I saw this diagram and I was like, like why is there no like horny, <laughs> like Wait, you know what hoarding is there no horny like because uh, like when you're a teenager that's like the biggest thing that you have to deal with and there's no um but like i'm saying it's like a huge can of worms because there's uh you know you can find people on youtube or twitter of like you know parents you know pta meetings being mad that there's like a book by a gay author because it has like you know talk about sex or something in the library and it's just a huge like yeah, hot rail issue. Um, so I'm wondering, like, and you know, the word groomer being thrown around—that's kind of a hot, hot, hot uh, subject in the internet spaces. So I'm wondering, like, what your take is and how this should be introduced, and in, like, a, this kind of emotional, sexual, or relational awareness should be introduced in like a, like a, you know, child, teen, etc., development context.
2: Right. <clears throat> Good question. So I guess, let me start with a disclaimer. I don't have children and I'm not particularly an expert in the domain, but you know, it is something I have some thoughts on, happy to share. Um, I think that the idea that we're supposed to hold back these kinds of conversations and this information from people until they're an adult makes no sense because it's not in alignment with reality, right? Teenagers are, exploring who they are. They're exploring their sexuality. Many of them are having experiences Um, and to the extent that we avoid it and we even shame it, they're going to have that exploration and those experiences in ways that are much more likely to be harmful and damaging. Um, And the more that they have the ability to have open and honest conversations, to be heard and listened to, and to be supported with information that can allow them to make healthier choices, the better that I think things are going to go to, you know, like to deny the fact that, you know, a 15, 16 year old person is having strong hormonal experiences that are causing sexual urges is just kind of silly. Um, And to the extent we do that, the urges are still going to happen. The exploration associated with that's still going to happen is just not gonna happen with any form of support. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think anything should be talked about at earlier ages, obviously in age appropriate ways, right? Like you don't, there's no reason to engage in any of these conversations prior to somebody already having a intrinsic drive in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, right? as, as young kids, Sexuality is not even on the table. It's not something that's on our radar. Um, So trying to engage it prior to that makes no sense. But as those things are starting to arise for children, as they're entering teenage years, um, I think that, you know, like as parents, being able to create a sense of safety so that your kids are willing to come to you and have the conversations and say, hey, I'm hearing about this thing at school. Can we talk about it? You know, my friend is doing such and such. Can we have that conversation? I think that's critical. Um, And then on sort of a case-by-case basis, looking at what is the information that would be relevant for them that would help them to have healthier relationships, particularly with themselves first, and then with anybody else that they're interacting with. um, I, I think that actually should be a fairly open conversation. But you know, the age appropriateness of it is key. Like you're not necessarily using the same language that you might with an adult. You're, there's not a necessity to go into graphic detail, but like having the ability to have very honest, very real conversation that creates the spaciousness and the safety for kids to be themselves and to do that in conjunction with parents and adults that. Can show up for them in a loving and caring way. I think is is key. And where that can happen, then the romantic relationships they develop will be able to be healthier.
3: If they have to hide it, they're likely going to have more hardship. I I, Go ahead. I heard
0: the I heard the question slightly different, and I wanted to answer the question that that I heard. I just want to make up a question and answer. Um, the question I heard was more like, if we're to like develop in this direction, how do we start introducing these concepts into our relationships that we currently have? And it, I saw David wrote, how would you imagine doing monogamy in such a way that you minimize what's missing from monogamy and integrate more of what's stronger in polyamory. And I think the question is essentially uh, synonymous here. To integrate or to begin to introduce a increasingly intimate, more radical form of transparency, self-knowledge, and and, uh, sharing is how that is introduced. As I've said five times, it's not introduced necessarily with a sexual act or any change in relational structure. It is a, that's a misconception and is a good way to see someone's maybe um, muddy intent to introduce a more radical self-knowledge with a more radical transparency and intimacy where you can share that in a space relationally and in communication that is like radically safe for those kinds of things to be shared is the foundation for the transformation and the positivity that comes from these concepts to begin taking root in the relationship itself it's not by any kind of sexual act or uh, exploration there per se mm-hmm. And that's also how I would answer, how do you imagine doing monogamy in such a way that you minimize what's missing there and integrate more of what's stronger in polyamory? I would say what's strongest in polyamory is that there's a radical safety for you to share what's real for you. You're like, I'm turned on by just seeing this, or I have this sexual kink, or I have these thoughts, or I have these feelings that just like in polyamory, Broadly, And I'm not like, it's not always the case, but in polyamory broadly, they're just for it to work. You have to have a more, a safer space for people's emotions to be shared and their emotions, their thoughts, their sexual, their thoughts around their sexuality, their feelings around their sexuality, their sexual needs, preferences, all of this stuff. Once that can become just wholesale safe in your relationship, that is how I would recommend monogamous people integrating the poly thing. That's what I'm almost like packaging as the poly thing is this radical safety, transparency, um, self-knowledge, a style of communication at large.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's totally decoupled from the choice to act on it. Right. But all the really healthy monogamous relationships I know the people are very open and honest about their attractions to others. They're open and honest about their sexual desires and preferences. They're just choosing to figure out how to explore that within the framework of monogamy, as opposed to the framework of open relating. But, you know, most forms of monogamy and societies exist today, you're not supposed to be attracted to anybody else. Right. So we don't share those parts of ourselves And that's just not realistic. Um, I I know almost no one who falls into that bucket. Um, And so, if the structure of the relationship requires you to essentially pretend to be somebody that you're not, it's not going to be all that fulfilling of a relationship. Where there's a willingness and the ability to be totally transparent for yourself, but also to create the safety and the spaciousness for your partner to be totally transparent that's where the quality of connection is going to come from, whether it's monogamous or poly.
3: And then whether you choose to act on any of those things is an entirely different thing. All right. Uh, David, did you uh, have a follow-up there or a question?
4: Um, I have another question later in, in the thread, but I'll wait unless it's my turn next. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, I'm just thinking that the way that I structure my relationships, um, given how deep they are, um, that it would actually impact maybe my relationship with myself and the very way that I structure my psyche on a subconscious level and so I wonder um, how that might play out in poly versus monogamy. Like for example, in poly, maybe I'll think of myself as being more multiple entities or or some such. I don't know.
0: I I want to answer here just the first thing that comes up for me. The most profound change that I have experienced in even considering polyamory is my relationship not to other
3: women, but it's my relationship to other men. It is literally the way that I think about competition, rivalry, my own fear, my own
0: fear of scarcity, not enoughness, all of my insecurities that might bubble up because of another man. The... As you're saying, as you're asking, there's like a subconscious structure of your psyche that as soon as I started considering open relationships, I realized that I was so conditioned to think less of other men who were attractive, which is the most, like, it's incredibly fucked that you would be resentful or jealous or have negative emotion towards men who are handsome, capable, confident, who are nice, who are like giving, loving, like what a painful, what a painful conditioning that I was dealt that I would be put off, pushed away from instead of drawn into and acknowledging of other men. And, um, so that that's the, the thing that comes up for me, the the deepest um subconscious conditioning that came up was my not my relationship to other single women, it was my relationship
3: to other men. Yeah, good point. Uh, I guess another piece I'll add, I think, in relationship to your question around structures. Um uh, so I don't think that there is a relational structure that is works better than
2: another one in general. But I also don't think that there's any relational structure that works well continuously for even a single individual. Right. So when you're looking at structures, they have to be evolu they have to be evolving in relationship to what's actually happening. Right. So like in my own life, I've gone through cycles where at times, more of my attention and energy is relational, and I'm putting you know a bigger portion of my calendar, a bigger portion of my energy into those that I'm connecting with. And then there are times where more of my energy is going into my purpose and my work, and the structures around that evolve in relationship to all of it. Now, in my case, I, I don't do that exclusively based on what's happening inside of me. I do it in relationship to the ecosystem of the relationships that I have. But you know, relationships inherently change and evolve. Right? Um, a good friend of mine, uh, Reed Mahalko, who's a well-known sex educator, he says that you know, the, the way that we've measured success in relationships as a society is faulty. Right? The primary metric has been duration. And the longer you stay together, the more successful the relationship. Um, The way he reframes it is that the primary metric of success in a relationship should be depth. And I really loved that when I heard it. And I think when you hold that, you don't have the attachment to how long does a relationship last and is that key? You have an attachment to is the way that we're connecting authentic to the nature of what's between us? And is it supportive of the evolution of each of us as individuals and as a collective? Um, And when you hold that frame, relationships are going to cycle. And so even though there are deep loves that I've had for many years, sometimes we spend more time together, sometimes we spend less. And the structure of how we're relating evolves with that. And so I think one of the places where people tend to go wrong is they try to figure out the right structure. And then you try to like, it's almost like an indoctrination and you try to hold that. And that doesn't really work. You have to actually be willing to allow
3: there to be flexibility in the structure based on what's real. Any uh, follow-up share question, David? I'm good, thank you, appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I think I'll sneak in a uh, follow-up. Something Ari uh, said uh, sparked something. And as uh, um, Ari knows, uh, Jordan Peterson was my therapist for a few years before he became famous. uh, And uh, the last time I was kind of questioning monogamy and this type of, uh, this topic was with him. uh, And he strongly nudged me uh, to commit to my relationship. And that's that's part of the reason why uh, I'm married today. And he's firmly on like team monogamy and his philosophy on marriage is like basically shackle yourself to, uh, to your wife and your partner. Um, And this shackling uh, approach, I think uh, worked quite well uh, for me. Um, My wife and I, we went through our difficult periods. And if I engaged in sort of an open uh, relationship ethos during that time, I'm pretty sure I would not be in a relationship with her now. Uh, And I'm so grateful that, um, you know, I adopted that approach because I'm getting constantly surprised about how deep my relationship can go. Uh, and it feels like we're just getting started now. Uh, and at this point, just thinking about like adding another partner, like when would I have the, the, the time uh, to, for that, A eh? and uh, the time to like dedicate um, this kind of like delicious deepening with a, with another person. Uh, so I presence all this because I imagine in the context of poly, like when it comes to deepening a relationship, a communal aspect uh, would have to be uh, considered. Uh, and be very important like does your primary partner uh, and your secondary partners do they need to gauge in a deepening process as well uh, while you're gauging a deepening process with all your uh, partners Uh, and I'm getting the sense that a strong communal aspect and a a communal deepening uh, would be needed so I'm curious what uh, your thoughts are on that
2: yeah you know that's a really good question yeah I mean I haven't actually heard Jordan Peterson's take on the topic all that much um, but you know, one of the pieces you said there that I'll just touch on, um, like I was saying a little bit earlier, opening a r- relationship as a way of solving problems in the relationship, never going to work. Um, mm-hmm. Or at least at least very, very rarely. Um, and I think that's often the impulse that drives people. It right? is, there's something that's not being fulfilled. And so you want to open it up to find an opportunity to fulfill that. No, first do the work to find the connection, the fulfillment and the presence with your relationship. And then if there's still a desire to open, then figure out the healthy way to explore that. Um, and, and I think that's where this idea of shackling becomes useful is it's, it's not shackling in a negative context. It's being willing to show up fully to do the work that's necessary so that the relationship is really strong. And then if that's totally fulfilling, beautiful. If there's still something else desired, also beautiful. Um, then I think the second part of your question was, um, yeah, like what, are, what are the necessary implications on connections between partners? Um, and, and this is key, like the way that I think of relationship is it's like it's an ecosystem. And if you're gonna introduce something new into the ecosystem, it has to be supportive. You're not gonna bring in an invasive species. If I meet somebody, no matter how strong the connection is, no matter how beautiful it is, if they're coming from a competitive orientation where even if they're not saying, if it's clear that ultimately they wish that my primary relationship would end so that we can spend more time together, I'm not going to pursue that relationship no matter how strong the impulse is because ultimately it's going to cause breakdown. But if I meet someone and there's a really beautiful connection and it's clear that they love and support the other connection or connections that I have and want to enhance that in some fashion, then it has the ability to be really beautiful. It's not always necessary for there to be significant connection between the partners. It is usually easier. Um, And it is pretty important not to have conflict. Like if, if you've got a primary partner and they just really don't like somebody that you're interested in, the likelihood that's gonna go well is low. If they're relatively neutral and you navigate it well, that can go well, but if they actually enjoy each other, all that much better. Um, but I think the key piece, more even more than how much interaction is present between the people is, is the new connection that's being brought in at minimum neutral, but preferably supportive to the overall relational
3: ecosystem. And if it's not, don't
4: do it. Yeah.
0: I'm kind of currently in like a supportive only, like if, if it feels competitive and and edgy for you and you don't really want to be like a cheerleader supporter of my other relationships, then it just like, doesn't feel good for me. So, but I also want to, there's one thing here about like emergence, right? Where there's a lot of like, if you're talking to Jordan Peterson and peterson is advising you there's some part of intellect that's coming into this and there's also just like an emergent quality to relationships and if we can get to the point where we are really conscious and we have a lot of self-knowledge and we kind of like can clear out the shit so that the way that the relationship will naturally emerge is the way that it does is i think best right we're not um we're not trying to like struggle or like put into some kind of pre-existing form. Um, but the way that relationships uh, naturally emerge in a way that we could call shackled, committed, and um, purposeful is beautiful and wonderful. I wouldn't say a bad thing about that for a second.
1: Very cool. Um so we are, uh, we reached the 90 minute mark. Um, so perhaps we'll gently close here. Uh, any parting uh, thoughts, uh, Ari or James?
0: Yeah, I I have one. I have one. And Min um, <clears throat> wrote, you wrote, I'm realizing how polyamory is a test towards deep emotional maturity and high form of love. And I just want to re- work that a little bit and say that relationship is the test of emotional maturity and intimate relationship is the test of the quality of your love. And once you kind of grasp that, then the world really is your oyster and you find yourself on a path of deep growth and transcendence. And I wish that for all of you.
3: Well said. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess what I would would add to that is to me, it's like it it all kind of starts with relationship to self
2: because your ability to show up for any other form of relationship, monogamous, poly, regardless, is going to be determined by how well do you know yourself? How honest are you willing to be? How capable are you of showing up? Um, How willing are you to show up? And the more that you can lean into that, the more that you can lean into quality connection with other people, regardless of what structure that's going to take. But ultimately, the, the driver of quality relationships in any form is going to
3: be the willingness to be entirely real, transparent, honest, and the willingness to do hard work. Um, it also happens to be the driver of a lot of other good parts of life. Awesome. Well said. Uh,
1: so that includes uh, the session. Uh, so how'd did, how'd did it go, Eric? Uh, this is the first, uh, co-hosted session between Aaron and the air. So dope. Uh, it's fun. It's fun. Cause,
0: uh, you know, just having you anywhere around me, just like, I just like shake with Thumos and then having some friends in the session, you would think it'd be a good thing, but you just
1: end up getting heckled in the chat.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I just don't look at the chats when it's
3: happening. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And this, if anyone like, I think I'll do more of these, like pod uh, podcast at the Stoa approach. I think it's kind of cool. So if you have a, I only listen to Aerie the in the airs and Daniel Kazanjian's metagame podcast now, but if you have a podcast, perhaps to uh, reach out, we can make something happen. Um, and I'll put Aries podcast in the, the chat. I also link it in the YouTube channel and uh, James's brother, Daniel Schmachtenberger is returning to Stoa next week with Gilbert Morris on the history of uh, racial conflict uh, we're going to have a, a, a non-recorded session at the Stoa on Sunday, just with us here uh, sourcing questions. And Daniel's coming in next week, so you can check that at the Stoa.ca. Um, so that being said, James, Ari, and everyone, thanks so much for coming to the Stoa today.
2: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Peter.
1: Okay, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that.
0: There were some really fun little moments in there, and I did my best to stay on the thread that I thought was was important. Was that relationships have a power to be transformational and the quality of your love is something that we should consider all the time and if we say that we love someone what does that mean and how do we go about enacting that thing that we believe is powerful and positive for the world some big questions here and honestly this podcast is just full of big questions so um so good. God, I've been just lit up on this podcast lately. If you like this podcast and you've listened this far, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash in the air. And honestly, for as little as five dollars a month, you can just put some gas in the tank of this show. It's so, so helpful. And um you know, I generate so much life force and life energy out of just having these conversations. And The more I can share them and bestow upon you some of that positivity as well as the wisdom that these guests and myself stumble across. (laughs) Sometimes we bring it and present it. Other times people teach me here and other times we just stumble across it together and that's such a beautiful thing and I hope that um, by just having real conversations and stumbling across wisdom that you'll develop a faith in yourself that you too can stumble across wisdom if you let yourself have deep inquiries and you let yourself be in uncomfortable uncertainty and ask questions and follow the thread. So good. So thanks again for listening. Love you guys. See you in the next episode.